Good morning, dear friends. Welcome to the fourth installment of our series entitled Knowing God. Today's topic is the light versus the darkness. We begin this morning with a little bit of grammar. Yes, we're in school, so let's talk a little bit about grammar. Let's talk about the word absolute. When something is absolute, it means it is 100% true. An absolute statement, for example, is a statement that is true 100% of the time. If it is only true 50% or 80% or even 99% of the time, then it is not absolutely true. It is only relatively true because there can be exceptions to the statement. If you say oranges are sweet, for example, that is not an absolute truth because every one of us know that sometimes you get oranges that are sour, like some I had the other day. If you say all oranges are fruit, then that is an absolute truth. It is correct 100% of the time. Every orange is a fruit, and there is no room for exceptions. For further emphasis, let me give another example in absolute statements. If I say every animal is a dog, is that an absolute statement? No, it's not. Because wherein many animals are dogs, there are many exceptions to such a statement. There are also many types of animals which are not dogs. But on the other hand, if I were to say every dog is an animal, then that is an absolute truth because there is no exception to this statement. So what does oranges and dogs and all this have to do with the Bible study? I'm saying all of this, dear friends, to highlight an absolute statement which the Apostle John makes concerning what he learned from Jesus. John was the last living of all the disciples of Jesus and the only one to die a normal death from old age. In Satan's attempt to wipe out the growing early Christian church, all the others had been bravely and fearlessly executed in different ways, standing true to their faith in Jesus Christ. But God had preserved John especially to write for our benefit a record of the final events that will happen on the earth before he returns. Now the Roman emperor Domitian had tried to kill John by having him placed in a huge cauldron of boiling oil. But John was calm and composed, and when they pulled him out, not even a hair of his body was singed. The boiling oil had no effect on him. The emperor was frightened out of his wits by this manifestation of God's great power towards his servant, and he ordered that John be moved as far as possible away from him. So John was banished to the lonely isles of Patmos, where Jesus visited with him and where he received visions of what would come to pass on the earth, and he wrote these in the book of Revelation. Now John lived to be well up in his 90s, and after the death of the emperor when he was brought back to the mainland, in looking back over the whole of his life and reviewing all that he had learned from Jesus, John made a very concise summary statement. He had walked with Jesus as a young man every day for three and a half years while he was on earth. He had sat at his feet and learned from him. He had seen Jesus in dedicated toiling day after day in his ministry to the crowds of people, teaching them, feeding them, 
healing their diseases, and raising the dead. He had seen him crucified and had been with him for 40 days after he was resurrected before he ascended back into heaven. And late in the life of John, he is about to summarize his whole life's experiences with Jesus. He is trying to put all he learned from Jesus into a nutshell to say it all in one brief, concise, and I would say loaded statement. This statement is found in 1 John, that's the first epistle of John, chapter 1 and verse 5. And here is what he says. This then is the message which we have heard from him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, at a glance, this might seem like just a simple statement, but it is deep and loaded with truth, dear friends. The statement that God is light and in him is no darkness at all is an absolute statement. No darkness means none. It leaves absolutely no room for any exceptions. Light and darkness are two opposites which are diametrically opposed to each other. If you have a room that is locked up and very dark, and you suddenly flick a switch turning on a floodlight, what happens to the darkness? It doesn't slowly take its time and go away. It vanishes instantly. It cannot remain in the presence of the light. And so too, if you were to dim that light gradually, you will notice that the darkness is creeping in, and the more you dim the light, the more darkness comes in, until if you turn it off completely, the darkness returns as fully as it was before. The darkness is only the absence of light. When the light is withdrawn, the darkness can thrive. But in the presence of light, the darkness cannot exist. Now John is using words that we can relate to. Because no matter what country or culture you go into, to all human understanding, there are certain things that we associate with light and certain things with darkness. What are some of the things which every race and culture and nationality automatically associate with darkness? Well, things like death, sickness, suffering, pain, war, a stormy day, fear, violence, destruction, disasters, calamities, selfishness, hatred, bitterness, anger, hopelessness, and it goes on and on and on. All of these find themselves on the side labeled darkness, that which is not desirable, that which brings gloom, that which brings hurt and suffering, that which we try to avoid at all costs. But on the other hand, what are some of the things that we all universally associate with light? Life, happiness, joy, contentment, peace, health, love, friendships, forgiveness, understanding, satisfaction, a bright sunny day, positive feelings, you know, feelings of optimism, and prosperity, spiritual and temporal prosperity, and so on. And I believe that everyone can see that these are two distinctly opposite types of situations, as opposite as light is to darkness. We naturally gravitate towards the light and away from the darkness, 
It is also self-evident that a person cannot give what they do not have. Something cannot come from you if it does not exist in you. You cannot be the source of something which is contrary to your nature and does not exist in you. In other words, death, sickness, disease, calamities, violence, and all the rest that we associate with darkness does not and cannot come from God. He does not use nor operate according to any of the principles of darkness. This is to say that a lot of things that many people blame God for, even among Christians who attribute certain unfavorable events to the dealings of God, a lot of these are based on a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of God and the way the Bible expresses certain things. But gradually, in due time, all will become quite clear to your understanding. Now, it is true that you will read certain things in the Bible which says that God sent destruction upon people or God destroyed them and such, especially in the reading of the Old Testament. But we will deal with all of these in due time. In this series, dear friends, we will go into detail. We will even go behind the scenes and bring to your view things that most people overlook so that all can clearly understand what is really meant by such statements which seem to show that God gets wrathful and destroys his enemies. Last week, we showed that God dies for his enemies, as represented by Jesus Christ, hanging there on the cross of Calvary. We will also show why the Hebrew writers wrote and expressed themselves in certain ways that they did. That will come in due time. So I must tell you now that this promises to be a very insightful, very revealing series which will revamp our thought processes concerning the ways of God and will open our eyes to see God in a whole new light. You will see God with new eyes and it will liberate your mind from the lies of the enemy and bring us full circle to see that this is exactly what Jesus Christ has been revealing about the Father all along. And as always, we will be completely logical and most importantly, completely biblical. Now, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the prophet Isaiah tells us the method for getting a clear understanding of the scriptures. He states, Isaiah 28, 9 and 10, Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand the doctrine? Those that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. In other words, he's saying we must grow in our understanding of what God has given for us to know. We cannot afford to always remain as babes in our understanding, as milk drinkers. He says we are to be weaned from the milk. And then he continues in the next verse. Verse 10, he says, For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. So we will be exploring or digging into these matters, scripture upon scripture, line upon line, here a little, there a little, as we are told to do in Isaiah 28, 9 and 10. Not making any unsupported assumptions, not giving mere human opinions, but remaining always consistent and providing biblical support for every teaching. First of all, it must be clearly established that the Bible does not contradict itself. 
because contradiction brings confusion and God is not the author of confusion, we're told. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 33. God is not the author of confusion and contradiction brings confusion. God is all-knowing. The theological word used for this is omniscience. God is omniscient. This means that God knows everything all the time. He knows what route you're going to take to work tomorrow and the day after and the next week and the next year and always. And he knows all the people you're going to meet along the way and what you will say to them. And if you change your mind and take a different route, he already knows that you would have done this. He knows everything about everyone for every moment of their life. And he does not just know this a little before it happens. No, God knew exactly every detail of everything that would happen in this world from eternity in the past. The scripture says, even the very hair of your head is numbered. So the wisdom of God is infinite, which is just another theological word, meaning that it is without any limit. God, therefore, does not need to second guess himself. He cannot make a mistake. He knows what choices people are going to make even before they make the choice. The Spirit of God knows all the deep things of God. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, But as it is written, Eyes have not seen nor ears heard, neither has it entered into the heart, in other words, into the imagination of man, the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed these unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. The Spirit of God, therefore, is all-knowing. So here's the thing. The Bible in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 tells us, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, in righteousness. All scripture, it says, all scripture is inspired by God. God inspired the prophets of old by the Holy Spirit, and they wrote according to the culture and the context of their time. Therefore, God could not tell one prophet one thing as truth and then contradict himself by telling another prophet something opposite as truth. That would be confusion. And as we showed earlier on 1 Corinthians 14:33, God is not the author of confusion. An all-wise and all-knowing God cannot contradict himself. Again, we read from the writings of the Apostle Peter. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. 2 Peter 1 and verse 21. So once again, we see here that the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of the Bible. So since God knows all and does not make mistakes, we can rest assured that there are no contradictions in the Holy Scriptures. So then, if we see where it says something in the Bible, and in another place in the Bible it says something else which seems to contradict, we have to know for a fact that the misunderstanding is with us. It's not with God. The Bible says in Romans, let God be true and every man a liar. It means that there is something we are not seeing clearly, something we do not quite understand, something which, if it could be cleared up, we would see that everything in the Bible comes together in perfect harmony and there is no contradiction. So the first point to establish is this, that the Bible does not contradict itself. 
The second point is that nothing bad ever comes from God. None of what we associated earlier with the darkness or anything of that nature ever comes from God. Turning to the book of James, we read, and I'm going to read it through first and then come back and break it down. James 1 from verse 13 to 17. It says, Let no man say when he's tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variation, neither shadow of turning. So it says God is not the one who tempts us or brings difficulty and trials or whatever on us. No. He says he doesn't do this with any man, verse 13. These come from living in a fallen world and we have someone whom the Bible calls a tempter and we ourselves bring ourselves into temptation by the choices we make also. And when we enter into temptation, we have consequences that we bring upon ourselves too. Verse 14 says, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust, his own sinful desires, and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, in other words, when it's taken root in the mind, it brings forth sin, it leads to sin, and it says sin when it is finished. When sin is finished, it brings forth death. It doesn't say when sin is finished, it causes God to kill you. It says when it is finished, it, sin, brings forth death. Then it says, do not err, my beloved brethren. In other words, do not make a mistake on this point. Do not get this wrong, my beloved brethren, he's saying. Do not get what wrong. The next verse says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Pause. What did John say? God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Here he's called by James the Father of lights. It goes on, he says, with whom there is no variableness, no variation, neither shadow of turning. In other words, God does not vary from his mode of operation of giving good and perfect gifts to his children. It says, in whom there is no variableness, neither a shadow of turning. What does it mean by a shadow of turning? Let's use an illustration. If there is a tree standing out in the middle of a field, an open field, and the sun is coming up in the morning, the sun is coming up in the east, the shadow will be behind the tree, stretching out towards the west. And as the sun rises higher and higher in the sky, the shadow shortens. And when it's directly overhead, the shadow is just directly under the tree. You can re can't really see much of it. It's directly under the tree. And as the sun moves to the west in the afternoon and going on to the evening, the shadow lengthens and goes towards the east of the tree. So the shadow is changing where it is. And why is it changing? Because the position of the sun in relation to the tree changes. So what does the apostle mean when he says, In God there is no variation from giving good and perfect gifts, not even a shadow of turning. He is saying that God's position towards you will never change. 
you might change towards him. And when we do, we make choices that places ourselves in situations where we deny him and abandon him and we bring consequences upon ourselves. And sometimes we do this as individuals, we do this as nations, and we bring consequences upon ourselves as individuals, we bring consequences upon ourselves as a nation, and even as a world or any other subgroup, we can make choices that brings harm. And again, notice that God is called here by James, the father of lights, who does not vary from giving good gifts. There is not even a shadow of turning from giving good to bad or from light to darkness in him. Not even a shadow of it. It can only mean then that if we see anything that could be construed as darkness or force or violence concerning God in our understanding of the scriptures or of what we have been taught, It means we are missing something. It means there is something we are not seeing quite clearly because God is light and in him is absolutely no darkness at all. That is an absolute statement of truth. The third and final point is that Jesus Christ is the key by which we interpret anything in the scriptures that seem to be out of character with God. As I said earlier on, we will come across some statements in the scriptures which speaks of God's wrath and God's anger and God's destroying. But behind every one of these statements, there is an underlying principle. The principles must be used to interpret the statements because like God, principles never change. Statements will change from here to there, but the principles underlying never change. So when we use this method, we are allowing the Bible to interpret itself instead of forcing our own interpretation upon it. God says in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. And Jesus, who has revealed to us what God is like, also does not change. His way of relating to mankind is consistently the way of self-sacrificing love. Giving all of himself for the sake of love, even to the point of self-sacrifice for those in rebellion against him. And so the Bible says of him, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13 and verse 8. He never changes. Which tells us then, that the only trustworthy understanding of what God is like that we have is the revelation given to us by Jesus Christ. He it is that shows us, even as he showed John, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. But despite this, most people still read the Old Testament as if they have a veil over their eyes. They cannot see through the language and the cultural expressions of the prophets. And so their minds cling to the imagery of an angry, destroying God who is revengeful and who comes to the end of his patience and wipes out his enemies. And they will pull example after example and say, well, how about this? How about that? Blinded by the language of the prophets, they stumble along resisting with all their might the truth about God as it has been revealed in Jesus Christ. The patriarchs themselves, the prophets themselves, did not have a 100% accurate conception of the character of God. They were good men, steadfast and faithful men, faithful even unto death. 
yet they were not perfect men and thus could not give the perfect revelation of God. They, like Elijah, the Bible says, were men of like passions as we are. They lived holy lives, dedicated to the work and the service of God, and yet they too needed a Savior. That is why, as we saw in last week's study in Hebrews, it was necessary for Christ to come as the one perfect man, as the express image of God, to reveal God to the world. Hence, when we come across anything that seems out of place, always turn to Christ as he is the only full and perfect revelation of the Father. In doing this, we cannot ever be wrong. And in due time, that which we do not see clearly from our understanding of the Old Testament, God will make plain. It will fall in place gradually. If we turn from Christ and hold on to our own understanding of what we read in the Old Testament, for example, not only will we end up wrong, But in reality, we would be rejecting the message which Christ came to give us concerning the truth about God. It would be as if we were saying, well, we hear you, but we don't really believe you are showing us the truth about God. In essence, we would be calling him an imposter. And this is exactly what the Jews did and eventually rejected and crucified him. Dear friends, The only way to know that what we know is absolutely true of God is to use Jesus Christ as the template, the interpretative key, using his life to interpret all that we do not quite understand. And then everything falls in place and becomes clear and our mind is freed from the darkness. Here is how the Apostle Paul puts it, 2 Corinthians 3, 13-16. It says, And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. He is using the example of Moses in the Old Testament. When Moses had a veil over his face, the people could not see clearly. Next verse. But their minds were blinded. Notice what he says. Not their eyes, but their minds were blinded. But notice what he says next. He says, for until this day, there remains the same veil not taken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. Amazing. He's saying that even to this day, many people still read the Old Testament as if they have a veil over their eyes. This is not speaking of visual eyesight. It's speaking of their understanding. He said their minds were blinded. He's saying that many people read the Old Testament but do not see clearly. Their understanding is veiled. But notice the next verse, 2 Corinthians 3.15. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. When Moses is read, that means Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. These are the books of Moses. This is where we find the flood the destruction of Solomon Gomorrah, an eye for an eye, and much more. And so people like to point to these things and say, well, how about this? How could God say such and such? How could God do such and such? The apostle says they are not seeing clearly. They have a veil upon their heart, blocking their understanding. But notice the next verse, verse 16. It says, nevertheless, 
when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Wow, notice this. So when the eyes turn to Christ, recognizing that he is the one who gives meaning to everything else. When we see Christ as the key, using his behavior, his life, to interpret the actions of God that we do not quite understand in the Old Testament, then we have understanding. Then we begin to see clearly. It says the veil shall be taken away from the eyes of our understanding. We are liberated from the darkness. The spirit of truth is given free reign to work upon our minds and hearts, not only giving us a better knowledge of truth, but also changing our own character from one stage of development to another, conforming us to the very image of God, which we lost at the fall of mankind, right there in the Garden of Eden. This is liberty from darkness to light. And the resulting change brought about by the Holy Spirit in our own life is seen in the next two verses, which incidentally you'll remember from last week's study. After telling us how the veil is taken away by turning to Christ and using him to understand what we don't understand, verse 17 then says, Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. In other words, freedom from fear, from the darkness of the lies which the enemy has told us about God, which keeps us in bondage. And then verse 18 now says, But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are being changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So yes, once again, it is by beholding that we become changed. But to experience the change that God desires of us, we must be beholding the truth concerning him as it is given to us in Jesus Christ. To look anywhere else to understand who God is or what God is like is really to say to Christ, I don't really believe what you have revealed. I think you're an imposter. Who wants to do that? I don't think any of us do. So he invites us to come into a clearer understanding of truth, a clearer understanding of God, which he has brought to us. May God bless you, dear friends, as we continue to dig and to explore. It promises to be very interesting. So hang in there with me and keep trusting. God bless you all, love you all, and stay tuned for part five next week. Have a wonderful week. <music>